Hi, everyone. My name is Michael Zerner. I'm one of the managing partners at We Family Offices. I'm joined today by my colleague, Matt Farrell. Matt is in charge of our investment group and has a particular focus and expertise into private and alternative uh, investment markets. And Matt and I are going to spend a little bit of time today talking about what's gone on in the private markets over the last uh, 12 to 18 months, and uh, then hopefully even more time on where things might be headed uh, and what investors should be thinking about. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Sure. My pleasure. So Matt, let's let's start with a really really big picture look. You know, in the face of the last year and a half, really, the the, the big driver for all financial markets has been central banks around the world raising interest rates at unprecedented rates. Obviously, starting with the Federal Reserve here in the United States, how has that really impacted big picture the private markets, uh, whether from evaluation, fund flow, cash flow? You know, from multiple perspectives. Right. Yeah. I think first we need to take a step back and look at what happened, you know, roughly a year plus ago uh, when the Fed started raising interest rates. And we saw a, a lot of volatility in the public markets and just the way private markets are valued on a quarterly basis. And there tends to be a lag in uh, marking assets to market, uh, so to speak. There was a lag in, in, in volatility in the in the private market valuations. And so it took a while for investors to identify, you know, that volatility specifically in the privates. But on the public side, the drawdowns just made our uh, investors quite skittish. And so that's due to just, you know, behavioral finance, because in general, people are not wired to be good investors. You know, we have a fight or flight response. And so whenever we see volatility, the first reaction is to sell and uh, avoid trouble. And so we really saw a, a reduce or a reduction in um, client commitments towards private markets and GPs who are in market raising funds. There was really a slowdown in their ability to raise capital, just an all around flight to safety. And so that continued really through the rest of 2022. And it wasn't really until we are starting to get in audited financials from 2022, where uh, GPs have really started marking down their portfolio. And it's very asset class specific, but I think there are some asset classes to where we haven't really seen the bottom yet. You know, for example, venture capital, a lot of managers have valuation policies to where they're not going to mark down a transaction until there's a next funding round. And so if they haven't, if the underlying portfolio company hasn't raised an additional round of capital, then they're not going to mark the portfolio down. And so we're still in this, you know, gray area uh, as to whether we've seen the bottom yet. And and so we're talking about sort of bottoms and markdowns and you know negatives. Were there any bright spots over the last year and a half in the private investment markets? Anything that you would look at and say, you know, it, it bucked that trend? Yeah, I think private credit behaved pretty well. You know, uh, specifically on the direct lending side, because you're really relying on fundamental credit analysis, and that's tied to corporate credit. And companies have continued to perform. You know, above expectations, I think. And so what we've seen in, in direct credit is, is most borrowers are current and continue to to pay. And they've reaped the benefits of the higher rate uh, environment because uh, most of the, the contracts are linked to floating rate. So whether it's LIBOR plus a spread or SOFR plus a spread. And there, so the, the direct lending strategies have actually benefited from uh, the increase in rates. Something to watch though, at some point, this these floating rate loans can turn a good company into a bad company if the the 
cost of debt and interest cost just exceeds their ability to to generate revenue. So so bright spot being private credit, but a little bit of a warning signal there as we look forward. So, you know, Matt, when when we talk about investing, you know, in general, we always say it's more important to look forward than look backward, right? You've talked to us about what the last year and a half has looked like. I know that in private market investing, one of the tenets that we really hold hold on to strongly is you have to have a strategic private investment program. It's not about committing, you know, random amounts in different years. It's about saying, okay, over a long period of time, I'd like my uh, exposure to private markets to be X percent of my portfolio, uh, knowing that it could take years to build there the way private markets work in terms of when you make a commitment, it could take three to four years to be fully called on that commitment and invested. And so really having a program and sticking with it uh, in terms of, you know, the amount of capital committed every year across different vintage years, different market cycles is very, very important. Has anything changed given the last year in in your perspective on that approach? No. And in fact, I would double down on that and, um, you know, look no further back than the global financial crisis. Those are some of the, the best vintages in, in private markets. And so I think looking forward, it's the same same idea. You know, there are certain uh, sub strategies or sub asset classes where it's more pronounced. You know, I think biotech is a great example. The the drawdown that we've seen over the past year is just hard to believe that the, the valuations or, or stock prices or some of these biotech companies are, are trading at. And so I firm believer that we look back in 10 years and think this is one of the best vintages that we've seen. You know, some data came across uh, this morning from PitchBook that shows that early stage VC dropped 5.7% from the prior quarter, which is 63% discount from where it was in Q122. So that's a substantial decrease in valuation. And so there are certain ways to take advantage of that. Of course, just allocating to traditional venture capital, you can take advantage of the more realistic expectations from uh, founders and portfolio companies. But in particular, I think venture capital secondaries is attractive because in addition to that, you know, 60 plus percent difference in valuation from a year ago, they're able to acquire these positions at a discount. And we're hearing anywhere from 20% to 50%. of. And so when you combine the, you know, drawdown in pricing to the additional discounts, it's a compelling opportunity set. And even if, one were consistently investing in venture for the last few vintage years. This is an opportunity to continue to do that, but sort of average, you know, maybe maybe average down your entry cost by going in this year relative to uh, the last few years where entry costs would have been higher. So important to stay, you know, consistent. Now, one of the other tenants that we often talk about with private investing is that while you want to, A, you want to have a strategic program and B, uh, you want to uh, invest consistently across vintage years, that doesn't mean that the way you deploy capital in every vintage year is going to be the same. So to your point, a couple of years ago, we started to deploy more into private credit, which served investors well, right, uh, over the last year. But as you sit here, right, in May of 2023, and you look forward, what what are the, the, the spaces within private markets that you think are more interesting from a 2023 vintage year perspective? Right. Well, we talked about venture capital just purely from a valuation standpoint, and we're firm believers in innovation and 
innovation is 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 not cyclical. But aside from venture capital, you know, everything we look at funnels up across equity, credit, or real assets. And so we we try to touch on those buckets every year. But you know, so within real assets, you know, cautious on real estate and and you know, although that served us well over the past couple of years, we're we're pausing there and looking at, you know, ancillary real asset plays, and in particular, plays that will take advantage or have current tailwinds. So for example, the Inflation Reduction Act and all the government subsidies towards infrastructure, towards energy transition, you know, something we're looking at now is the the mining space of precious, precious metals that are the key inputs into the batteries to, for electric vehicles. You know, you have see governments around the world making pledges to transition to a, a fully EV environment. And the reality is there's just not enough raw material out there to to fund to to meet these promises. And so um, the reality is also that it's mining could be a dirty business. And so we're trying to take a you know ESG lens to that approach because, you know, unfortunately, it's a necessary evil to mine these minerals out of the ground as key inputs into into electric vehicle batteries. So we're looking at managers in the space that are doing it in, in a prudent and environmentally friendly way. Um, so precious metal mining. Another thing we're looking at is is credit. You know, we've talked about direct lending and, and that served well, and we still think that's an attractive opportunity set, which I'll expand in a minute, but also in the special situations front. And that's really direct lending, but maybe the underlying company is facing some short-term headwinds or you know, balance sheet issues. And a skilled manager can come in and add operational value, or they're just providing capital whenever the traditional banks are reducing their their credit extension. You know, the other side of that uh, is that you know direct lending, which we talked about, which is just traditional extending credit to quality companies. You know, the term sheets that we're seeing out there with our uh, GPs, they're extending term sheets with fourteen percent coupons. And then able to get additional underwriting fees or early termination fees or equity warrants. So the question remains, is it worth going down the risk spectrum to lend to potentially distressed companies? Is is that risk adjusted return worth it whenever just traditional direct lending is offering such value? I see that, Matt. That's interesting. Now, another another word in the private investment markets that comes up often is the secondary markets. Could you talk a little bit about, first of all, what, what is the secondary market in private investing and why in particular now might be an interesting time to be looking to make commitments to secondaries? Sure. So secondary markets have been around since, you know, at least the 90s, but they've really matured over the past, I would say, five years. But in general, a secondary transaction is an asset owner is looking to sell a position in, in a private company or an LP position in a fund. And as we know, private markets are not exchange traded. They're generally illiquid, but this is a form of liquidity. Now, granted, if a if an asset owner wants to sell, they should expect to sell at a haircut, meaning at a discount. And so while that's not great for the seller, it's attractive for the buyer. You can get a quality asset at a discount. So why would an asset owner want to sell a position? There can be several reasons. You know, it could be liquidity issues. It could be just general portfolio management tool. And we see it quite often in, in public plans to where you know, maybe they get a new CIO or they have strict policy guidelines. And due to what's something called the denominator effect, they're having to reallocate. So the denominator effect can happen whenever there's a public market drawdown. But that, given the private markets are valued on a lagging basis by sometimes two to three quarters, 
it can throw your asset allocation out of whack. And for institutions with strict guidelines, they may have to liquidate some of their private positions. And so uh, it's, it's an attractive for that standpoint because you're buying assets at a discount and it's not a blind pool. So meaning you're able to look at the underlying funds and portfolio companies and know what you're buying. Yeah, yeah, Matt. That, that, you know, one of the things I find interesting in the secondary markets is that as a buyer of secondaries, you're you're often buying from someone who has to sell, right? And and that can lead to opportunities to buy at prices that are lower than they otherwise would be if that seller didn't have to sell that asset. Uh, so that represents an opportunity. Now, you mentioned earlier some of you know what's going on in the in the venture space. Right. And and when you combine secondaries and venture, uh, that leads to a, a particularly interesting opportunity right now. Sure. Uh, so, you know, again, once we're seeing the drawdown in valuations that we're seeing now, and, and I think will continue for the next several quarters, you combine that with a discount, it makes a pretty com compelling opportunity set. But I think you, you still have to be cautious. You shouldn't just blindly buy positions because of what we were referring to earlier, on, and that's cash runway. So what what is their cash burn rate? So meaning how quickly are they going through their cash on their balance sheet? And when you say they, you mean the company, the underlying not, portfolio not the company. investor. Right. Correct. The underlying portfolio companies, how quickly are they burning through their cash? And so if a company has a two-year cash runway, that means that they can continue to fund operations, you know, pay employee salaries and, and, and build inventory, whatever they're doing, for the next two years before they have to come back to market and raise more capital. Now, remember, we said that uh, some companies aren't being marked down yet because they haven't gone through another round. Um, and so that's when you could be marked down if you have to come back to the market and raise additional capital. And so, you know, with our, our partners in the secondary market, they have to perform fundamental underlying company analysis and look at the balance sheet and ensure that they have sufficient cash runways because you could buy it at a discount and, you know, that's a margin of safety. But if the underlying companies have to come to market, you know, in particular the next several months to raise capital, there will be markdowns. And so it's it's just not as good of an opportunity to say. So you want to make sure your underlying companies are healthy and have a couple year runway. Makes lots of sense, Matt. So I want to close just on one more general topic that both looks back and looks forward. So we we talked about some of the the key you know uh, best practices in a private market investing program, right? One is to be strategic, right, and have a long term target. Two is to invest every vintage year. Three is to you know diversify what you're investing in uh, across vintage years. But at the end of the day, private market investing is about cash in and cash out. And I think investors, you know, before the rate cycle started rising, got got used to uh, that once they got through the early part of the program, right, the cash out was equaling the cash in and then the cash out was in excess of the cash in and they were in a positive uh, cash flow cycle. I think one of the things that probably has happened in the last year is that investors have seen a reduction in cash distributions because there's there's little opportunity for funds to realize, you know, uh, investments uh, and they've seen an increase in capital calls as funds have seen opportunities that they want to take advantage of. Do you expect that that sort of change in calls and distributions and cash flows will continue for the next, let's call it 12 to 18 months? Or do you see anything that would uh, maybe bring us back to more normal expectations? Right. I, I think it's 
asset class specific, you know, I, I think venture capital will continue to see, you know, a, a somewhat frozen capital market. You know, I saw today there were only eight IPOs in the first quarter uh, of this year. So there's still not a ton of activity, which would generate liquidity on the venture capital side. You know, we're, we're seeing some buyout generate uh, liquidity and, you know, they've seen a, a good opportunity set. The buyout strategies have seen a good opportunity set on, on corporate divestitures. Um, so meaning, uh, in, in the current environment with inflation and questions around supply chain, um, companies are having to make balance sheet decisions of, about where to allocate their assets. And so they're trying to divest, you know, they call them orphan corporate assets, you know, maybe a pet project or just a business unit that was an investment. They're divesting to, um, and, and private equity are buying these companies and applying an operational value add, shoring up the balance sheet, and then able to generate liquidity. So, we're, you know, I've, I've always heard M&A will still happen in up and down markets. And so we're still seeing that in the buyout space. So I think it's really sector specific. But I think in this environment where there's finite capital to be deployed, I just think you have to be even more selective. You know, obviously, we we promote being selective and and uh, investing with top tier managers anyways, but I think it's more important to do so now and being selective and and target uh, strategies that have tailwinds, like we were talking about with venture capital secondaries, maybe something in the precious metal space as well with the energy transition. Thank you, Matt. I think we'll end it here uh, and we'll look forward to future discussions. Thank you.